Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. The DOJ releases new details regarding the attack on Paul Pelosi. The suspect is charged with assault and attempted kidnapping. Former President Trump is trying to block a House committee from getting his tax returns. He's asking the Supreme Court to intervene. Twitter reportedly fact-checking an incorrect tweet by President Biden. And your account could soon get a blue check mark if you pay for it. Governor DeSantis travels to New York and explains why New Yorkers continue to move to Florida. And former President Obama has a serious issue with Senator Ron Johnson. NTD has today's election update. And is affirmative action coming to an end? The Supreme Court today hears arguments in a high-profile case against Harvard. What are the justices saying? The Justice Department has charged the suspect who allegedly attacked Nancy Pelosi's husband on Friday night with assault and attempted kidnapping. NTD's David Lamb reports. In a Monday press release, the Department of Justice announced that 42-year-old suspect David Wayne DePap has been charged with assault and attempted kidnapping of Paul Pelosi. According to the DOJ, on October 28th at 2.23 a.m., San Francisco police received a 911 call from Paul Pelosi, husband of the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi. He mentioned that there is a male in the home and that the male is going to wait for Pelosi's wife. Police arrived at the San Francisco property and knocked on the front door eight minutes later. The complaint states that, quote, when the door was opened, Pelosi and DePap were both holding a hammer with one hand and DePap had his other hand holding onto Pelosi's forearm. Pelosi greeted the officers. The officers asked them what was going on. DePap responded that everything was good. Officers told the men to drop the hammer and DePap allegedly gained control of the hammer and swung it striking Pelosi in the head. Once DePap was restrained, officers secured tape, rope, a second hammer, gloves, and zip ties from the crime scene, where officers also observed a broken glass door. An aerial photograph showed glass on the back porch. Police arrested DePap inside the Pelosi residence. Pelosi later said that he had been asleep when DePap, whom he had never seen before, entered his bedroom looking for Nancy Pelosi. The suspect told SFPD he wanted to hold Nancy Pelosi hostage and speak to her, saying if she were to tell the truth, he would let her go, and if she lied, he was going to break her kneecaps, calling her the leader of the Democratic Party's lies. According to investigators, DePap lived in a garage in Richmond for about two years. He's described as being mentally ill for a long time, according to Oksan Gypsy Taub, a woman who identified herself as DePap's former life partner. Taub, a nudist activist, lived in Berkeley and told ABC7 they parted ways seven years ago. DePap had never been particularly involved in politics, but appeared to share her left-wing views when they were involved. NTD spoke to neighbors of DePap's previous residence. We've seen him like he was with some little girl like as of recently, like a month and a half ago, and then one of the children from inside this house. And they were like walking down the way. DePap is charged with one count of attempted kidnapping of a U.S. official and one count of assault on their immediate family member based on official duties, which may hold a maximum sentence of 50 years in prison. The case is under investigation.
David Lamb, NTD News, California. And former President Trump on Sunday responded to the incident by saying it's a terrible thing that happened. He made the remarks in an interview with Americano Media. And Trump is asking the Supreme Court to intervene in a dispute with a congressional committee. He's asking the high court to stop the IRS from giving his tax returns to Congress. Democratic Congressman Richard Neal, chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee, is seeking six years of Trump's returns. Neal says they're necessary to make sure presidents are audited properly by the IRS. But Trump's lawyers say that the House Democrats are actually planning to release his tax returns to the public. They say such attempts raise constitutional concerns that have largely never been addressed. An appeals court last week rejected Trump's request for a new hearing on the matter, and that's why Trump is asking the Supreme Court to intervene. Elon Musk is now the sole director of Twitter. Security filings show that he's dissolved the entire board of directors, including the former CEO, chairman, and others. Twitter also reportedly fact-checked President Biden over the weekend. Here's a roundup of the latest Twitter developments. Twitter is seeing big changes after Elon Musk took possession of the social media platform last week. Musk is reportedly planning to use a subscription model for users to obtain blue check marks. The check mark acts as a verification badge for well-known people to prevent impersonation. Journal The Verge reports that Twitter is planning to charge around $20 per month for the check mark. Musk reportedly told employees they have to implement the changes by the end of this week. In other news, Twitter reportedly fact-checked a tweet made by President Biden. Last week, the president tweeted, let me give you the facts. In 2020, 55 corporations made $40 billion, and they paid zero in federal taxes. My Inflation Reduction Act puts an end to this. However, Journal Red State and Fox News reported that Twitter added this note to the president's tweet, saying the Inflation Reduction Act imposed a minimum tax on corporations with average pre-tax earnings greater than $1 billion. Out of the 55 corporations the tweet references, only 14 had earnings greater than $1 billion and would be eligible under Biden's new tax law. NTD reached out to the White House for comment, but didn't hear back before broadcast. On Monday, the Washington Post reported that Musk plans to fire a quarter of Twitter's employees. There are currently 7,000 in the workforce. Musk reportedly already fired several top executives, such as former CEO Parag Agrawal, the chief financial officer, and the head of legal and public policy, who is responsible for former President Trump's ban. Meanwhile, a new social media, which claims to be equality-based, is going against what they call Elon Musk's MAGA Twitter. The app is called Tribal and states that it bans racists for life. It has preemptively blocked Donald Trump, Donald Trump Jr., and Kanye West from its social network, citing their spreading of dangerous conspiracies and fake news. In the App Store, the platform describes itself as a social media done right. Reporting by Arian Pastar, NTD News. We're just eight days away from the midterms, and both parties are going all in to try to win. Over the weekend, former President Barack Obama rallied in Wisconsin, while Florida Governor Ron DeSantis campaigned in New York. NTD's Jason Perry brings us an election update. Former President Obama campaigned in Wisconsin on Saturday, where he rallied for Democratic Senate candidate Mandela Barnes. He claimed incumbent Senator Ron Johnson would make drastic cuts to Social Security. If he understands 
giving tax breaks for private planes more than he understands making sure that seniors who've worked all their lives are able to retire with dignity and respect. He's not the person who's thinking about you and knows you and sees you. Johnson, who's endorsed by former President Trump, recently shared documents and banking records with the Delaware U.S. Attorney's Office. They're part of his investigation into the Biden family's foreign business dealings. A Cook Political Report says the race between Johnson and Barnes is a toss-up. And in New York, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis showed his support for Republican gubernatorial candidate Lee Zeldin on Saturday. We probably have more people who leave NYPD, Port Authority, uh, FDNY, and some of them just leave to, to come and work in Florida, but when they retire, they all take their retirement to Florida. He explained the number one reason he hears from people who leave New York is the crime. And he said if Zeldin is elected, New York will become a law and order state and that the citizens will not have to worry about any medical mandates. Meanwhile, according to the Washington Examiner, Kathy Hochul recently said on MSNBC, they have this conspiracy going on all across America, trying to convince people that in Democratic states that they're not as safe. Well, guess what? They're also not only election deniers, they're data deniers. Real Clear Politics considers that race a toss-up as well. Ballot drop boxes have been an issue of concern for both parties. And in Arizona, two nonprofit organizations filed a lawsuit against a group of volunteers monitoring the ballot drop boxes. The organizations claim the volunteers were intimidating voters. Well, on Friday, a judge dismissed the lawsuit and will allow the volunteers to continue monitoring the drop boxes. And on to Michigan. Polls show that the wide margin Democratic Governor Gretchen Whitmer has over Republican challenger Tudor Dixon is now narrowing down. Dixon, who has Trump's endorsement, appears to be doing a final push before Election Day. During their race, many attack ads against Dixon went unanswered for weeks, as she said she was trying to raise more campaign cash. Now Dixon's ads are airing on TV. She's hoping to capitalize on GOP momentum, fueled by voters' concerns about inflation and President Biden's low approval ratings. And speaking of momentum, former White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki said on MSNBC that Democrats are worried that the momentum has shifted toward Republicans as polls continue to tighten in the lead up to the November 8th midterm elections. Jason Perry, NTD News. Should colleges consider race and admissions? The fate of millions of students could be decided as a case unfolds over affirmative action. NTD's Iris Tau has more from the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court on Monday listened to nearly five hours of oral arguments on if it's okay to consider race in college admissions. The group Students for Fair Admissions is suing Harvard and the University of North Carolina, saying their consideration of race unfairly puts African Americans at an advantage and other groups such as whites and Asians at a disadvantage, even though they're equally competitive in terms of merit. Here's what the group argues today. Racial classifications are wrong. That principle was enshrined in our law at great cost following the Civil War. Harvard and UNC, meanwhile, argue that it's important to ensure diversity at universities, adding that past Supreme Court presidents say the use of affirmative action is permissible. The justices, meanwhile, appear deeply divided along ideological lines. The three liberal justices defended the consideration of race, with Justice Kentanji Brown-Jackson questioning the very standing of the case. And how your members are being harmed by that. And I'm worried 
that that creates an inequity in the system with respect to being able to express your identity. But Chief Justice John Roberts, who's conservative, expressed deep concerns about using race in the admission process, going back and forth with the Harvard lawyer. And I think it's important to, for you to establish whether or not granting a credit based solely on skin color is based on a stereotype when you say this brings diversity of viewpoint. It may not bring diversity of viewpoint, viewpoint in a particular case at all. But the high court could hold on to these high-profile cases until next June and not issue rulings until the end of the term. It's worth noting, though, that all nine justices went to colleges that now consider race and admissions. That means if the court decides to ban it, the ruling would wipe out the affirmative action programs at the alma maters of all of them. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Arus Tao, NTD News. And if you have any news tips or feedback for our show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. And coming up, Brazil's next president is named, and it's a close one. Lula da Silva and his Workers' Party declare victory with 50.9% of the vote versus 49.1% for his opponent. And in college football news, the Auburn Tigers, who at just 3-5 and five are in danger of missing a bowl game, made a major change today. NTD's Dave Martin has the details. That and more coming up. In South Korea today, investigations begin as people mourn the victims of the world's deadliest stampede in decades. Here's an update on the tragedy. On Monday, South Korean investigators were at the narrow alley where a stampede erupted over the weekend. They're looking for answers as to how a surge in Halloween partygoers resulted in the death of over 150 people. Authorities say they're analyzing footage from more than 50 CCTV cameras as well as from social media to find out the exact cause of the accident. They're also questioning witnesses and store employees near the site. Some South Korean officials are being criticized for an alleged lack in preparation. Seoul police assigned less than 140 officers to manage a crowd of over 100,000 over the weekend. By comparison, nearly 7,000 police officers were sent to another part of the South Korean capital on Saturday to monitor protests. Those protests drew tens of thousands, but still fewer people than flocked to the nightlife district the same night. The national government says there was no way to predict the crowd would get out of control. Also on Monday, the president of South Korea mourned the victims outside the Seoul City Hall Plaza. The stampede area was empty on Monday night, and Halloween festivities are being called off across the country. A real tragedy there. And in Brazil, incumbent President Jair Bolsonaro has been silent so far about the election result. A senior official says Bolsonaro is drafting a response he plans to give tomorrow. That's after a narrow defeat by former President Luiz Inácio Lucia da Silva on Sunday. Earlier today, I spoke with the editor-in-chief of the Epic Times Brazil, Marcos Chatkes, for his analysis. Marcos Chatkes, welcome to our show. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Now, there are concerns that this election wasn't fair due to a number of factors leading up to the election. What are these concerns? Well, I think the main one for many is the fact that um, the way Lula even came to be a candidate, uh, let's not forget, Lula was convicted on corruption charges and on money laundering charges, and he got released not because his innocence was proven, not on the merit of the accusations. 
it was released because a Supreme Court justice understood procedural grounds were not right in the process. And let's not forget also, this Supreme Court judge was nominated by a Workers' Party member, Lula's successor, Dilma Rousseff, and he was a hard left um, activist before getting nominated. So this is one of the main concerns there, that um, the way Lula came to be a candidate. And there are many more, but I, I guess this is the main one. Under pressure from the left, the Electoral Court and the Supreme Court um, censored conservative voices in media. Um, during the election, they were blocked from calling Lula unconvicted and other certain names in, in opinion shows, uh, which is directly against free speech in Brazil. Another concern, radio broadcasts promoting each candidate by law are supposed to be the same in Brazil for both candidates on a presidential runoff. But audits coming from Bolsonaro's campaign um, detailed how there could have been over 100,000 more for Lula, 100,000 more radio broadcasts. And what role do you think the media had in the outcome of the election? Well, the media's role was huge, for instance. If uh, conservative media can say what they think about the leftist candidate, but leftist media can say what they think about the conservative candidate, you don't have a level playing field. I just mentioned uh, radio inserts and how Lula might have had more inserts than Bolsonaro going against electoral rules. Well, Brazil is an underdeveloped country, especially in the countryside to an extent. So for many people, the only way they can get information on the, on the candidates they're electing is by radio. If you have over 100,000 less radio inserts, what impact do you think that will have um, for less economically favored uh, voters, for poorer voters in the countryside? The media's role was huge and it leaned only one way in my view, which was left. And there's videos of alleged criminals and gangs celebrating Lula's win. Why is this? Well, um, I'll, I'll, I'll explain something. And many Americans have a hard time believing it when, when I explain this. But it's pretty much proven by now. Um, in the 1990s, Lula created an organization called the Sao Paulo Forum, along with Cuban communist dictator Fidel Castro. That organization has mingled with narco-terrorist groups for a long time now. I'm talking about the FARC in Colombia, the ELN in Colombia, armed groups which are actively involved in drug trade. But even before that, if you go back to the 1960s, to the 1950s, um, drug trafficking criminals on the hard left have been linked in South America for a while now. The topic is very extensive. We could go in depth on it for hours. Uh, but to make it short, um, the left in Latin America has historical ties to organized crime. And Lula has already talked in his, in his government program even um, about releasing criminals, about um, reducing the amount of people that are arrested. He has been a historical ally of organized crime and that is well documented. So I think that's why they're commemorating because um, they will probably be acting more. The homicide rate is the less uh, it has been in Brazil for over 10 years under Bolsonaro now. And I think we are likely to see a crime wave in the next four years in Brazil. China's dictator Xi Jinping congratulated Lula on his return. And they look set to rekindle the closer ties Lula had fostered last time he was in power. How do you think Lula's reign could affect Brazil and China's role in the region this time around? Well, um, let, we, we need a brief history lesson here. 
China has historically taken Latin America, Africa, and Asia as a foreign relations priority. That goes back to Chinese Marshal Lin Biao, which said the strategy of taking the cities from countryside as applied to China could be applied worldwide. What does he mean by that? In China, Mao Zedong first took the countryside to then get the cities out of food and invade. Lin Biao in China argued the same could be done worldwide. You'd have to get the countryside, that is, Latin America, Asia, Africa. After you could get those, you could aim at the cities, namely Western Europe and the United States of America. So traditionally, the third world has been a priority for China. Under Lula, in 2004 specifically, he made deals that enabled China to act strategically in Latin America. Under his presidency, China, prior to 2004, 2003, when he was first president, had about 5% of Brazilian foreign trade. Now it's about a third. That's right, 31% of Brazilian foreign trade in 2021 was related to China. The leverage is just huge. So I think it's obvious that China, having Latin America as a priority, is likely to find an, a Lula government, um, a Lula administration, some, some great news. And Latin America right now is leaning hard left and is leading to the Chinese from the southern tip of South, Amer of South America up to the U.S.-Mexico border. Um, and the region is less and less favorable to American interest and more and more favorable to Russian and especially Chinese interest. Brazil is the cherry on top. Marco Chacas, editor-in-chief of the Epic Times Portuguese edition, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. Chacas and his team at the Epic Times and NTD Brazil produced a documentary about Lula's Workers' Party, the ties between the Latin American left and organized crime, including the drug trade and its impact on Western nations. We'll be airing it on our channel in the weeks to come, and we'll keep you updated soon with more details. And now over to sports news. Here's NTD's Dave Martin with today's top stories. In college football news, Auburn head coach Brian Harson was let go today after less than two years on the job. Harson went just 9-12 since taking over for Gus Malzahn following the 2020 season. The Tigers were just 3-5 this year and were in danger of missing a bowl game for the first time in a decade. Harson's problems, though, started last winter after the university launched an investigation into his handling of the program after a number of players and coaches left the team following the season. Ultimately, he was cleared of any wrongdoing. The 45-year-old was fired just before the school was set to name a new athletic director in John Cohen, according to an ESPN report. Elsewhere in the college game, Michigan State suspended four players in the aftermath of an altercation in the tunnel at Michigan Stadium after the team's 29-7 loss to rival Michigan on Saturday. Spartans coach Mel Tucker said all four players will remain suspended until the investigation is complete. Meanwhile, Michigan coach Jim Harbaugh said he, quote, can't imagine that this will not result in criminal charges. And finally, for your viewing schedule this evening, all four of the major sports are in action tonight. First in the NBA, seven games decorate the Halloween schedule, including the lone undefeated team, Milwaukee Bucks, hosting the Detroit Pistons. The NHL, meanwhile, has a triple header scheduled for tonight, including the streaky St. Louis Blues, which after winning their first three games, have lost four in a row now, 
taking on the LA Kings. And in Monday Night Football, a battle of Ohio as the Cincinnati Bengals are at the Cleveland Browns starting at 8.15 Eastern. And finally, for you baseball fans, the World Series resumes tonight with Game 3 in Philadelphia with the series tied at one game apiece. The hometown Phillies will be starting Noah Syndergaard on the mound while the Astros counter with Lance McCullers Jr. That's a wrap for sports. Back to you, Steph. Thanks, Dave. And thank you for watching. I'm Stephanie Cox. Until next time, good night.